Second Samuel, chapter 15. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot of horses and fifty men to run before him. And Absalom used to rise early and stand beside the way of the gate. And when any man had a dispute to come before the king for judgment, Absalom would call to him and say, From what city are you? And when he said, Your servant is from such and such a tribe in Israel, Absalom would say to him, See, your claims are good and right. But there is no man designated by the king to hear you. And Absalom would say, Oh, that I were judge in the land. Then every man with a dispute or cause might come to me, and I would give him justice. And whenever a man would come near to pay homage to him, he would put out his hand and take hold of him and kiss him. Thus Absalom did to all of Israel who came to the king for judgment. So Absalom sold the hearts of the men of Israel. And at the end of four years, Absalom said to the king, Please, let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I lived at Gishur in Aram, saying, If the Lord will indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will offer worship to the Lord. The king said to him, Go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent secret messengers throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then say, Absalom is king in Hebron. With Absalom went two hundred men from Jerusalem who were invited guests. And they went in their innocence and knew nothing. <coughs> and while Absalom was offering the sacrifices, he sent for Ahithophel the Gileadite, David's counselor, from his city Gilhol. And the conspiracy grew strong, and the people with Absalom kept increasing. And a messenger came to David, saying, the hearts of the men of Israel have gone after Absalom. Then David said to his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Rise, let us flee, or else there will be no escape for us from Absalom. Go quickly, let he overtake us quickly, and bring down ruin on us, and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servants said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king decides. So the king went out, and all his household after him. And the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out, and all the people after him, and they halted at the last house. And all his servants passed by him, and all the Kerasites and the Pelasites, and all the, uh, and all the 600 Gittites who had followed him from Gath, passed on before the king. Then the king said to Atea the Gittite, Why do you also go with us? Go back and stay with the king. For you are a foreigner, and also an exile from your home. You came only yesterday, and shall I today make you wander about with us, since I go, I know not where? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. But Tehah answered the king, As the Lord lives, and as my lord the king lives, wherever my lord the king shall be, whether for death or for life, there also will your servant be. And David said to Tehah, Go then, pass on. So Atea the Gittite passed on with all his men, and all the little ones were with him. And all the land wept aloud as the people passed by, and the king crossed the book, book Kritra, and all the people passed toward the wilderness. And Abiathar came up, and behold, Zadok came also with all the Levites, bearing the ark of the covenant of God. And they set down the ark of God until the people had all passed out of the city. And the king said to Zadok, Carry the ark of God back into the sea. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, 
it will bring me back and let me see both it and the dwelling place. But if he says, I have no pleasure in you, behold, here I am. Let him do to me what seems good to him. The king also said to Zadok the priest, Are you not a seer? Go back to the city in peace with your two sons, Ahimaaz your son, and Jonathan the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the forest of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. So Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. But David went up to the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads, and they went up weeping as they went. And it was told David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. While David was coming to the summit, where God was worshipped, behold, Hushai the archive came to meet him, with his coat torn and dirt on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, you will be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I have been your father's servant in time past, so now I will be your servant, then you will defeat for me the counsel of Ahithophel. Are not Zadok and Abiathar the priests with you there? So whatever you hear from the king's house, tell it to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Behold, their two sons are with them. There, Ahimaaz, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send to me whatever, everything you hear. So Hushai, David's friend, came into the city, just as Absalom was entering Jerusalem. The timeless theological principle for today's chapter is the Lord punishes the sinner, but human responsibility is never negated. If you recall, upon committing adultery with the wife of Uriah the Hittite, and upon killing Uriah the Hittite, Nathan the prophet is sent to rebuke King David for his sins. Part of Nathan's rebuke included God's punishment for David, and it is found in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 11 through 12. Here's what the text says. God says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes, and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the son. Although David repented, and although God forgave David of his sins, many years later, God keeps his word, and the consequences for David's sins fall upon him. The human agent whom God uses to bring pain into David's life is David's own son, Absalom. The prophecy of Nathan will literally be fulfilled as evil is raised against David out of his own house, and as we shall see in next week's chapter, Absalom will lie with David's wives in the sight of all Israel, thereby fulfilling even the most horrific parts of the prophecy. As you read the next three chapters, we must remember today's theological principle. Yes, God judged David through Absalom. However, Absalom will be fully culpable and responsible for his horrible sins of rebellion 
against his own father and the acts of incest with his father's concubines. God in his infinite wisdom and omnipotence controls all history, both the good and bad. And yet in his holiness, he is uh, not guilty of sin, nor is he responsible for evil. Such truths are above human reason. But the Bible not only teaches this, but it is actually quite unapologetic about it. Listen to these verses. Isaiah 42, verses 24 to 25. Who gave Jacob for a spoil, and Israel to the robbers? Did not the Lord, he against whom we have sinned? For they would not walk in his ways, neither were they obedient unto his law. Therefore he has poured upon him the fury of his anger and the strength of battle, and it had set him on fire all around, yet he knew not. And it burned him, yet he laid it not to heart. In those two verses, God, through the prophet Isaiah, makes it abundantly clear that the warfare, the burning, and the robbers were all sent from God upon the nation of Israel because they were disobedient unto God's law. Israel, however, doesn't fully consider that all the calamities are from God and therefore they continue in their sinful ways. Repentance, as I said before, is God's gift to the saint. Blessed are you if the Lord reveals to you the reason for your hardships and grants you the grace to repent of and forsake your sins. What we see in Isaiah 42 is the complete sovereignty of God and the complete responsibility of sinners. Robbers are the ones committing theft, and therefore they are guilty of sin. Yet the text clearly states that God himself gave Israel up to those robbers. Friends, every single day that we live in safety is a gift from Almighty God. Every day we have food, shelter, and are free of disease, we are living within the grace of Almighty God. If God was not our provider, protector, shield, and refuge, surely we would be given up to our enemies. Disaster and the devil. We clearly see this principle even in Job 1.10. Satan is unable to touch Job, much less hurt him, because God has put a hedge of protection around him. And so Satan complains. Listen to him speak in Job 1.10. Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands, and his possessions have increased in the land. Are you in calamity? Turn to Christ. Cry out for his aid. He is Almighty God. Are you in safety? Give thanks to Christ. Cry out in thanksgiving to him. He is Almighty God. Perhaps the greatest narrative, which demonstrates both good and evil, and the full control of Almighty God, is the narrative of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You see, in that narrative, Jesus makes clear that although he will be crucified as prophesied for the sins of humanity, nevertheless, Judas the betrayer will be fully culpable for his sin of betraying the Son of God. Listen to what Jesus says 
in Matthew 26:24. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. In one verse, you see the Bible unapologetically declare the sovereignty of God and the culpability of man. Again, here's another text explaining the crucifixion event, Acts 2.23. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. What is that verse saying? It is saying that Jesus was crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Remember, nothing including evil things happened outside of God's control. Yet it also says, you, the Jewish people, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So according to scripture, both the Jews and the Romans are fully culpable for beating and crucifying God's Son, the most horrendous sin in human history, and yet at the same time, this was decreed by God. It was part of God's plan. Such is the wisdom of God. Now what we see in the cases of Job, Jesus, or today's narrative in Absalom, is this. Although God permits evil to occur, He uses evil agents to bring about His ultimate good purposes. We've all, heard, we've all heard atheists ask the, uh, for an answer to the age-old question. If God is all-powerful, and if God is all-good, then how is there evil in this world? That question is answered by the response. An all-powerful, all-good God permits evil in order to accomplish His ultimate good purposes. What was the worst sin in human history? What was the worst sin in human history? Was it not the crucifixion of Jesus Christ? Yet God used the worst sin in human history to bring about the most glorious redemption of all human sinners who repent and believe in the resurrected Christ. Such is the wisdom of God. And if God did that with the worst evil ever perpetrated in this world, then you can be sure that He is working all lesser evils for our good and His glory as well. Hallelujah. Amen. He is taking all your past sins and good acts and working them for good. You can rest assured of that. Verses 1 through 6 of today's chapter explains how Absalom came into power. First, unlike David, who did not lust after the kingship of Saul, Absalom is full of pride and is, is, is running with a 50-man chariot display. This display of regal power was not unnoticed by the people of the city. In fact, David should have stopped it as soon as he heard about it, but one of his flaws, as we're seeing, is his inability to correct his sons. Next, he intentionally rose early to stand beside the way of the gate. Now, why would he do that? You see, the city gate was where legal matters were settled by the elders of Jewish society. Absalom undermines the authority of the king 
by stating to the men who came to the gate that he wishes that he was the judge of the land. This was tantamount to Aslam declaring that he wished to be king, that he would be a better ruler for the people. Notice the way he kisses up to the people in verse 3. He asks them about their origins. He seems to care about their welfare. He tells the plaintiffs that their cases seem right. And when they're about to show him homage, he stops them and shows them deep affection. In such a way, he won the hearts of all Israel. There is an application for all of us here. Although Absalom's motives were impure and evil, we could easily learn the lesson of amicability from Absalom. The Bible instructs Christians to greet each other with a holy kiss. What that means is that we ought to show warmth and interest in the lives of other Christians. Everyone needs a warm embrace. Everyone loves to hear a kind word. You will certainly win hearts through warmth, empathy, presence, and amicability. Just make sure that your motives are pure. Absalom did these things to illegally gain the throne. We, on the other hand, could do these things in order to show, demonstrate love so that Christ our King would be exalted. These are just practical steps that we can take to show people that we genuinely care about them. You will win the hearts of people this way. You will not win it by isolation. Good leaders, in fact, are excellent at practicing these things. Say what you will about President, former President Bill Clinton, but it has often been said that even though you were in a room full with other people, once he talked to you, you felt as if you were alone in the room with him. He gave you his undivided attention. Good leaders are always good at amicability. What we also must remember is that warm relationships take time. Absalom knew this principle, and so verse 7 states that he waited four years before he made his move. Through steady and intentional greetings, Absalom won over the hearts of all Israel in a matter of four years. Verse 12 informs us that some very powerful people joined Absalom, and that the conspiracy grew strong as Absalom's numbers continued to climb. We can learn from David in verse 14. As soon as David hears about Absalom's rise to power, he decisively and wisely moves everyone out of Jerusalem. He leaves ten concubines to keep the house, but he and his party leave right away. Later, as the chapter winds down in verse 37, it declares that this was the right decision. Why? Because it tells us that Absalom had quickly moved into Jerusalem with his forces. David would have surely died if he did not wisely determine that his departure was necessary. There's an important principle for all of us here. Sometimes it is important for us to flee. Let that sink in. Sometimes it is important for us to flee. 
The Apostle Paul fled Damascus through a hole in the wall. David fled Jerusalem and saved his life. In fact, fleeing saved his life. At times, fleeing in order to fight another day is the smartest move that a leader can make. There is nothing glorious about being slaughtered in a battle that you knew you were going to lose. It is far wiser to regroup and fight for a victory on another day. Wisdom will dictate when to stand your ground and when to regroup. Pray for that wisdom in your daily lives as each day you fight a war with words, thoughts, interactions, and actions. Know when to speak, when to listen, when to stand down, but also when to stand up. Now in verses 18 to 23, there are 600 Gittite foreigners who stick with King David through his trial. And quite frankly, the Israelites ought to be ashamed of themselves. While they're busy rebelling, foreigners have the wisdom to stick with the Lord's anointed, King David. Atei, the Gittite, bravely declares, As the Lord lives, and as my Lord the King lives, wherever my Lord the King shall be, whether for death or for life, there also your servant will be. That is a true soldier, my friends. That's loyalty. Those are the type of faithful men that leaders long to have. And those men are in this narrative also blessed by God. Now let's move on. Verse 24 informs us that the priests and the Levites were ready to join David with the Ark of God. David does the honorable thing and trusts in God, and he does not try to use the Ark superstitiously, as we saw with the Israelites uh, in the book of Judges, the day when Eli's sons were slain, Hophni and Phinehas. David doesn't do that. David is keenly aware of God's rule over all creation, and here's what David says. If the Lord says, I have no pleasure in you, then let him do to me what seems good to him. He trusts himself in God. Not in an ark or any other religious memorabilia. Brothers and sisters, we we often sin when we think we could outmaneuver God. This is a losing endeavor. It is foolish. Instead, we ought to entrust ourselves to the hand of Almighty God, repent of our sins, and fully trust in God's mercy upon our lives, as everything that unfolds in life is due to His majestic decree. You will never have a job that God does not intend you to not have. You will never die before it is your time. You will never marry someone you weren't supposed to marry. And when I say that, I'm speaking in macro terms. You will live your life exactly the way God has planned your life to be lived. Both Absalom and David lived their lives exactly as God ordained it for them. One for glory, one for demise. As David sends the priest back, God in his loving sovereignty stages a few breaks to go David's way. This is not luck, 
this is not chance. Although, if you were there along with David, you might certainly feel like he was getting lucky. But this is all God. Ahithophel was one of the most feared and wisest counselors in all Israel. When he spoke, it was as if God himself was speaking. The news that Ahithophel had joined the conspiracy reached David. And you can see how weighty of a man Ahithophel was because the news causes David to pray in anguish. Listen to his prayer in verse 31. David says, O Lord, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. And you know what? God literally answers the prayer in the very next verse. In the next verse, Hushai the Archite, also a wise counselor, happens to meet David at the top of the summit. David sends Hushai back in order that perhaps Hushai could defeat Ahithophel's counsel before Absalom. This will indeed transpire, by God's grace, exactly as planned. Hushai goes back to offer his services to Absalom, and David sets up a messenger system. Hushai will tell Zadok and Abiathar the priest, and their sons will relay the message to David. This undercover work of Hushai will benefit David and all his followers, as God in his mercy provides for David's eventual victory and Absalom's eventual destruction. In his infinite wisdom, God punishes the sins of David through Absalom, and yet he holds Absalom fully responsible for the sins of rebellion and incest against his father. So in closing, let me repeat the timeless theological principle. The Lord punishes the sinner, but human responsibility is both real and never negated. Remember that. Trust in the Lord. Plan, but trust in the Lord. This principle is most clearly seen in the Gospel. You see, in the Gospel, a righteous and holy God loves us, but must send all sinners to hell. We are all sinners who deserve hell because we are not only born sinners, but we make choices as volitional creatures, choices of sin every single day. We deserve eternal punishment in hell. But God loved you so much that He sent His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, fully God and fully man, to die on the cross for your sins. Three days later, He resurrected from the grave. So that if you would repent of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord God and Savior, you will have eternal life. That decision is yours. But once made, you can look back and say, Lord I didn't choose you. You chose me. Hallelujah. Let's pray.